0: Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr James Bergen. When I was a zoology student, and people used to ask me what it was I actually did, I would answer that I basically studied how animals eat, sleep, and, to paraphrase, reproduce. Okay, that is a simplification, but how animals reproduce is a massive part of the field, and most of the time they do it sexually, but not always. In today's episode we're exploring the rise of the asexual vertebrate, those rare few species that have done away with the need for males. As we explore the paper, The Role of Hybridization in the Origin and Evolutionary Persistence of Vertebrate parthenogens a Case Study of Dravesky Lizards. parthenogens of course, just being the technical term for those species where embryos develop without fertilization. So, let's meet the lead author, Dr. Susanna Freitas.
1: So, my name is Susanna. I'm from Portugal and I started working with um, lizards in my master's and then went on to the PhD. And recently I'm living in Lausanne in Switzerland, uh, working with uh, stick insects.
0: Well, welcome to the Heredity Podcast. Thank you for taking the time to discuss this paper with us. And I guess the first place that we should start is with obligate pathogenesis in itself, because that's essentially what this paper is about. So what is this?
1: Yeah, so obviously sex is so important for evolution and adaptation. And when a species evolves without sex, then that makes it weird and special. And it's much more common in invertebrates than invertebrates. In, vertebrates. in vertebrates, it's about, I don't know, 90 species from my counts. So the way we classify species, it's also based on sexual reproduction. So sometimes the diversity within each of these species is very, very high. Uh, yeah, for me, they're amazing. I mean, they're all females that can reproduce without the need of sex or all of the advantages that sex might bring, like adaptation against parasites or getting rid of bad mutations. And and still, we can find asexual species that sometimes are very, very old and other times they're very, very widespread. It's why they're interesting for me.
0: And I mean, how common is asexuality in vertebrates especially? Because I don't think many people even consider it as a thing.
1: Yeah. So we find asexual species in three of the vertebrate clades in fish and amphibians and and reptiles. They have very different strategies. So reptiles are the only real partner genetic species. They can really reproduce without the need of any sperm or male contribution. And in fish and amphibians, we find a more diversity of strategies.
0: One of the things that's really interesting in what you're saying there is that there's about 90 species that show this, which in the grand scheme of things is not a huge number of species, and it's an incredibly diverse range of strategies. But there seems to be sort of like two prevailing hypotheses explaining the evolution of this asexuality. So what are these two big hypotheses?
1: So in vertebrates, as a rule, they're from hybrid origin. So the origin of asexual vertebrates is from the hybridization between individuals of different sexual species. So in the 80s, Moritz came up with the hypothesis that hybridization can potentially happen between all sexual species as long as this hybridization falls inside a specific or a very narrow range of distances between them. So all sexual species have the potential to originate an asexual hybrid as long as they meet and hybridize in this specific moment of their divergence. Another hypothesis that has been put forward, and actually this hypothesis was based on this group, these Zarefsky lizards, when they found that the hybridization events that originated the parthenogenetic hybrids were always between two different clades, and one of the clades, the species of this clade, always acted as the mother, and the species of the second clade always acted as the father. This hypothesis that was put forward simply suggests that besides this distance, there must be some genetic factor that is lineage dependent. So these species have something that, when they met, allowed the hybrid to uh, reproduce asexually.
0: Yeah, oh, that's, that's fascinating. And it's, it's kind of, I guess it's interesting as well because we also don't necessarily think of species as hybridizing. So this is a great time to kind of move into looking at your study in particular, because you've focused in on one group of lizards. So yeah, maybe you could just tell us a bit about this group of lizards and why they were interesting for your study.
1: So historically, they're actually important because they were the first to be found asexual vertebrates. So in the 60s, there was some researchers that were studying these populations of these lizards. And in a specific population, they only found females. And every time they went back there, they they only found females and never found males. It was the first observation of vertebrate asexuality. I mean, it's an amazing group. There's, Like I told you in the beginning, there's like 90 species in total of uh, vertebrate asexuals. But in this group alone, there's seven. And they've distributed in a mountainous region in the Caucasus. And there is also a huge diversity of sexual species and they can live in different habitats. So some adapted to forest, uh, others adapted to rocky habitats. Yeah, so so they're very diverse in terms of their ecology as well. And uh, yeah, but actually one thing that I wanted to say that is also great about these lizards, it's the amount of things we already know about them. It's not very common that people focus on asexual species because, I don't know, People mostly think that they're dead the end, so that there's no point of studying them. But uh, for this group alone, we know already a lot. So I think another cool stuff of this group is the amount of research that has been done. So it allows us to know so much.
0: No, perfect. And I guess you're right. I hadn't really thought about it, but I guess sort of central to a lot of ideas of evolution is the idea of sexual reproduction. Mm -hmm. But I guess it does sound like a really interesting group of lizards that you're working on. And, you know, you've kind of mentioned the hypotheses earlier, but I wonder if you could just kind of summarize exactly what it was in the study that you were aiming to test.
1: Okay. So the hybridization was in the origin of these parthenogens, but we also know that there's a lot of ongoing hybridization in the present, not only between different sexual species, but also between asexual species and sexual species when they're in sympatry. And we also knew that first these asexual species, they're only in sympatry with their sexual parents. And second, we knew that when in sympatry, they backcross and they originate individuals that are polyploids. But of course, we didn't know the extent of this back cross. We didn't know if there was any uh, new partner genetic lineages being originated, if there was gene flow happening either. In the direction of the, the direction of the sex or both. And yeah, we basically wanted to know if they maintained their distinctiveness, the sexual and the asexual species when in sepentry, or if they kind of formed the hybrid cluster or originated new partner genetic lineages. So this was one of the goals. And of course, because we had to also analyze a lot of asexual individuals of the same species. We also wanted to know with this data if we could determine if the hybridization events that originated each of these partner were either a single hybridization event or if they were composed by multiple hybridization events. So these were the main goals.
0: So it sounds like it's a really incredible amount of work you were doing there. What was it that you did to actually test these hypotheses?
1: Yeah, so we thought a lot which tools we uh, were going to use to identify the polyploids, And of course, they're vertebrates, and there's a lot of mechanisms that we could use to assess their ploidy that are very invasive, and we didn't want to go to the field and kill hundreds of lizards. So we decided that a good approach was to uh, use microsets and simply count how many alleles we find uh, in the polyploids. And we knew already, so there's some individuals or some samples that we had that we knew already, they were triploid and tetraploid. So we developed some microsets and we tested those microsets in those individuals and the ones that worked and gave us the, well, basically the ones that were more variable, we could use them to estimate the ploidy of the individuals that we then collected in the field.
0: It sounds like you've done an incredible amount of work in there. So I'm really curious about what it was you were finding in the study. Were you able to identify how these asexual lizards rose?
1: So one of the things we found was that even though there's a very frequent backcrossing between the asexual females and the sexual males, but uh, we didn't find any gene flow in this backcrossing. So the asexual populations or species and the sexual species are completely distinct from one another and there's an effective barrier to gene flow between these two. But during this backcrossing, they do originate these polyploid hybrids and they're mostly infertile. But even though they're infertile, they're a very high percentage of the population in these sympatric localities. So in one of the localities in specific, 17% of the individuals that we found were polyploids. And this taking into account that the asexuals have actually a demographic advantage and they reproduce twice as faster than than the sexual species. And also taking into account that these polyploids are completely infertile. So they're like dead ants and they have to be originated every generation. And the other thing we found was that, so we analyzed three asexual species, and we wanted to know if what we call one asexual species had, had been originated by one hybridization event or more than one. And we found that at least for two of them, we have, we're more certain for these two that they've most likely originated by more than one hybridization event. And in one of them, Varesca armeniaca, it's not only that there's been more than one hybridization event, but they're likely to have happened at different periods in time.
0: It sounds like an incredible amount of results that you have in there. But I mean, you mentioned earlier that this is kind of the original asexual species. As far as the research is concerned, there's lots of asexual lineages in it. So I wonder what you think this study can tell us more generally about vertebrate asexuality.
1: Okay. So the first part is that, like I told you in the beginning, most people think that asexual species are dead ends and they're a bit, I don't know, missteps of evolution. But what it happens is that yeah, maybe the origin is not very frequent, but when they originate, they actually show a lot of advantage in competition with with the sexuals. They have a demographic advantage. The, they reproduce much faster than the sexuals. They don't need to find mates, so they're less exposed to predators. I mean, there's a lot of uh, advantage of asexuality. And uh, what we find in these uh with these studies that besides the demographic advantage by retaining the sexual mach- machinery and back-crossing with the sexual males, they can actually outcompete them mas- much faster. So when in sympatry, the asexual females, if they find a sexual male or when with a sexual male, they copulate, then they originate these infertile back crosses. But there's so many more asexual females and the sexual male, their choosiness is in terms of size. So that these males, they have a lot to choose. And when they choose, they don't go for the females of their own species. They rather go for the big fat polyploid females. So, Every generation, they will mate less and less with the sexual females, and every generation, the number of sexual individuals will decrease. And this, with time, may lead to local extinction of these sexual populations,
0: no, that's fascinating. I think we would sort of default into thinking that the uh, the advantage would go the other way. So I mean, I guess just to sort of summarize, because there's an incredible amount in this paper, if you had to kind of just summarize it into sort of like one message that you hope people will take away from this paper when they read it, what, what do you think is the sort of key message?
1: So I told you in the beginning that the partner genesis, invertebrates was first found in these genus and when they started analyzing the origin so parental species that originated each partners and so forth they they developed these hypotheses that sexual species have some lineage dependent genetic factors that allow them when hybridizing to originate these hybrids that are sexual and fertile but they are able to reproduce partner genetically and by analyzing the distances of the sexual parents and of the other species we find that There is a huge overlap of distances. So only these four specific species, when they met, originated these asexual vertebrates and not all of the other species. So we don't think the distance alone can be used to explain the origin of asexual hybrids. We think it's something more than that. And yeah, that was... Another thing we wanted to present here in this work, we wanted to, I don't know, bring back to discussion, whether if it's distance alone or if we have to look to something else to explain how some sexuals, when hybridizing, originate individuals that are capable of asexual reproduction and and others don't.
0: Hopefully people will go and read this paper and it will spark the discussions that you're hoping for. And I guess just to finish up, could you just remind us what your paper's called? And also, I know you have lots of co-authors, so maybe just tell us who they were.
1: The Role of Hybridization in the Origin and Evolutionary Persistence of Vertebrate Parthrogens, a Case Study of Darevsky Lizards. So my name is Susanna Freitas, and then uh, James Harris, Neftali Sileiro, uh, Marina Raquelian, Roger Butlin, and Miguel Carretero.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you very much for sharing this work with us. Um, I hope many people will go and give it a read.
1: Okay, thank you so much, and thank you for being so kind and, and uh, for making this much easier.
0: <laughs> Thanks to Susanna. And just to let you know, this interview actually lasted for 50 minutes. Five zero. That's how fascinating this paper is. So please do go and give it a read. You can find it on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash HDY. And please do consider Heredity for your next research or review article. You can find details about submitting to the journal at the same address. But that's us for today. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. You can follow us on Twitter, at Heredity Journal. And if you want to drop me a message directly, you can do so at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Tune in next time.